Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here, as usual, with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Good to see you. And of course, when I say see you, you guys only hear us in the audience, but we do do this either in person or over Zoom so we can at least, you know, look at each other um, during during the podcast. And today is a great day for us because we're going to have uh, the very eminent journalist, author, and scholar Linda Greenhouse on. And I'll give you a full uh, introduction in a little while with all of her credentials. Last week, um, Ed Whalen appeared on our podcast, and, you know, we've been on a roll. Um, the, uh, the reaction to our podcast has been really uh, gratifying. You know, we track our numbers as best we can, and we see that we're up about 80% over the last three weeks. Um, and before that, we had a period of growth as well. So we thank you, audience, for tuning in and spreading the word. Um, and, in fact, the word is being spread on uh on the internet, there's uh, uh, we a couple of blogs about us this year. Prominent this week, a prominent uh, uh, blog, the Volok conspiracy, I know, uh, picked up on us and uh, uh, and so forth. And we're trying to be um, fair and balanced, to borrow a phrase. We've we had Ed Whalen, um, who was right of center, and today we're going to have Linda Greenhouse, who was left of center. And I can't wait for you, you, you to hear um, some of her meditations on the, some of the current justices, especially the Trump-appointed uh, justices. And she'll have some things to say about our, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer and, and how to think about uh, retirements and some interesting observations about actually the Chief Justice, John Roberts, and whether he's actually uh, continues to be in control of his own court as he once was. So lots of fun stuff that we're going to talk about today. And Andy, since you're talking about our audience, just a reminder, this is our 51st episode. We had our silver episode last week. Next week will be our 52nd. We do it weekly. That'll be our end of the year episode. And we're going to review some of the our favorite clips uh, from previous episodes, but we're also going to take some questions from audience members that you have submitted, and, and it's not too late to send in questions or comments for our end-of-the-year extravaganza. Yes, and to do that, you can go on to akilamar.com, find the podcast page. It's akilamar.com slash podcast hyphen two. But if you don't remember that, there's just there are links all over the, the website, and then there's a facility there for you to leave a question either – uh, by typing it, or actually, you can even leave it in your in your own voice. And if you do that, and we use your question, then your voice will be on the podcast. So that could be fun. Um, and I don't promise we'll answer all the questions, but we, we we will do some. And when we play back some of our highlights, it's not just going to be you know a clip episode. We're going to comment on our own comments. Um, it'll be interesting to to see how some of this stuff has aged. Um, uh, I know we've aged, but. <laughs> um, and, you know, we, so we had Ed Whalen, today we have Linda Greenhouse, we've had, you know, commentators from across the ideological spectrum. Bob, Bob Woodward and Alan Dershowitz and Nadine Strassen and Floyd Abrams and Philip Bobbitt and Neil Katyal and um, Michael Gerhardt and, and more. Yeah, so it's really been great. But one of the things that's nice about it is that it's always civil, and we always have something to learn from people on both sides of the spectrum. And that's also true of, uh, of Everscholar programs. You know, in Everscholar, we have, uh, we have an audience or scholars that attend, students, if you will, um, that are 
of all political persuasions, and the discussions are always civil. Um, what's it been like for you, Akio, when you've taught in Everscholar in terms of the, the nature of the teaching and the conversations and so forth? Somewhat similar to what our audience is going to experience today, Andy. Um, uh, Linda Greenhouse is going to be our guest, and she wants to talk about her book, her, her latest book, um, which is about the transition from, in her framework, from the, the Roberts courts to the Trump court because of uh, the death of, of, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And um, so sh- she is going to come on and talk about her book. And here's what she's going to get. She's going to get probing but um, uh, civil questions, especially from Andy, but also from me. And Andy has read the book with great care. Um, and, she, um, and, uh, and she'll be, I predict, very pleasantly surprised that because um, she's done a lot of interviews, I'm sure, but very few of the people who have actually interviewed her have read the book. And, and I know that because I've gone on book tour and I can tell the difference between folks who have read the book and folks who haven't read the book. And Andy, that's really when I began to fall in love with you because um, I, I did this. You asked me what it was like to be an Everscott. So I do the Everscott thing and Andy's actually read the books. And they're my books. I assigned, of course, I assigned my own books. Abraham Lincoln very famously is in his office and, and William Seward walks in and, and, and President Lincoln is applying a polish to his shoes. And Seward said, Mr. President, you shine your own shoes? And Lincoln looks at him and says, Mr. Seward, whose shoes do you shine? You know, <laughs> so of course I sign my own books. Whose books would I assign? Okay. But, but I do that to undergrads and I love them, but <laughs> most of them don't read the books or to law students. And I love them, but they don't always read the books. And, but in Everscholar, oh, they read the books. And Andy has read the book three times and he's got a long list of, of questions that he wants to ask me about the books. They're fair, um, they're respectful, um, but they're hard questions. Um, and, and he's going to do the same thing um, with, with Linda Greenhouse's book. So that's the answer to your question, Andy. Uh, it's, it's serious conversation because actually the, the students have done the reading. I remember we were at a program uh, this year that, that you taught on the first American founding, and we were at a dinner with some, some other students, some other scholars, and, and uh, one of them starts challenging you. I forget what the subject was, um, but the conversation continued quite intensely through the, through the dinner and then through the 30-block walk back to the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. that I, think, I think in part it was about secession. You start asking me, pushing my buttons about secession, and, you know. Right, but I, it wasn't me, though, that continued oh, it. It was, right. it was right. one, no, of no, our, no. one of right. our, our but, colleagues. But, but, but I won't stop. Yes. Um, and look, that guy's going to remember that conversation the rest of his life, that he had, you know, this, this respectful but intense conversation with, let's face it, the world's leading expert on the subject that we were talking about. And, you know, that's something special. So that's why I keep talking about it. That's why we spend our time about it uh, on this, because it's something that I think is really unique in the world. And, and Andy, you just t- talked about Everscholar. You, of course, want um, uh, folks who like this uh, podcast to, to check out Everscholar. And, of course, I want them to check out my books. And, and if you like the high-level conversation that this podcast offers, you might like the books. Uh, because they have the same kind of high-level intensity that Andy has has just described, um, that that also characterizes the the conversations, formal and infor- informal, in Everscholar programs, um, and that we hope uh, this podcast um, also uh, exemplifies at its best. 
Okay, well, let's, uh, that's great. So let's get to, to our special guest. We're so happy to welcome Linda Greenhouse today to our podcast. Uh, Linda covered the Supreme Court for the New York Times for 30 years, from 1978 to 2008, and she continues to write a biweekly op-ed column uh, at the Times. Um, at the Yale Law School, she serves as a clinical lecturer in law, as well as a senior research scholar in law. She's received innumerable journalism awards, including the Pulitzer Prize in 1998 and the Goldsmith Career Award for Excellence in Journalism from Harvard's Kennedy School in 2004. Uh, she's the author of numerous books, including uh, an important biography of Justice Harry Blackman entitled Becoming Justice Blackman. She also has co-written books on with Reva Siegel and uh, Michael Gretz and uh, an autobiography, 2017. Linda's the president of the American Philosophical Society. Uh, she's on the Council of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Senate of Phi Beta Kappa, and she won the uh, Henry Friendly Award uh, from the American Law Institute in 2002. She's been awarded 13 honorary degrees. Her uh, education began in 19 when she was a 1968 graduate of Radcliffe, now known as Harvard, and she also earned a Master of Studies in Law degree from Yale Law School in the great year of 1978, when I also graduated from Yale. Uh, her latest book, published last month, is Justice on the Brink, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and 12 Months That Transformed the Supreme Court. So welcome to America's Constitution, Linda Greenhouse. Hello, Linda. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And of course, Akil and Linda have known each other a long time, but I'm, I'm new to this conversation. Um, so let me offer my uh, congratulations on the birth of your granddaughter. <laughs> Thank you. I thought you were going to say congratulations on the publication of my new book. But well, that, that too. Um, but uh, actually, I had a, a thought about, uh, about how these are related. Um, you know, Akil... Uh, suggested that I read uh, a work of yours called The Long Tale of Madonna the Iguana, uh, okay. uh, which I did. And, you know, actually, I, I lost a pet this year. So I think anyone that has uh, had that experience can see themselves in, in your piece. Um, but, of course, it's The Long Tale, T-A-L-E, um, but uh, which obviously is a play on the tail of the of the iguana, which apparently got to be very long and knocked down the, the shower glass uh, in the end. But similarly, the title of your new book, Justice on the Brink, and then you go on, um, can also be read, the word justice can also be read multiple ways. You know, justice itself on the brink, but also, of course, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was on the brink, you know, the rise of Amy Coney Barrett also was on the brink, and then 12 months that transformed the Supreme Court. So it's an interesting choice of words there in the title. Well, I, I hadn't quite thought of it that way, but it just occurs to me, you could also think it relates to Chief Justice John Roberts on the brink of being in control of his of the court with his name on the door or or not. Indeed. And a lot of times we tend to think of the court, well, five, is it 5-4 is control of the court? And here, in, in some sense, uh, you know, the conservative wing has gone from, you know, 5-4 to 6-3. So some might say, you know, 
big deal, but actually, you know, your book, you know, goes into into great detail about how that may may well be a big deal. Um, so, you know, I'd like to. I noticed that there were a bunch of themes in your book that actually overlapped with things that we talk about in the podcast. So we were hoping that um, we might go over some of them. So let me lay it out for our audience. Um, you know, we're going to take the title seriously, so we want to consider the moment, right? The moment at the beginning. Uh, and so forth, where your book starts. And then even though the book is written chronologically, um, you use the various cases that come up in, in very interesting ways. They provide a, a narrative of, of certain issues, of, of course, but you also show us how they give us insight into individual justices. So we want to look at the so-called Trump justices as you portray them, um, and also at three issue areas that you emphasize, religion, uh, abortion, and guns. And then finally, uh, in, in the epilogue, in, in the last paragraph, last uh, chapter, you take up the question of the role of precedent. Um, and as we sit here, as you put it on the brink, and this is a question that Akil has been very interested in. So we hope to explore that as well. Okay, so um, let me get started at the moment that the book gets started, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, um, you know, you write it contemporaneously, uh, you tell us in the epilogue that you didn't go back and edit chapters in light of subsequent developments. So it adds to the sense that the book is really about a moment. And you ask the question, will historians of the future judge 2020, which I assume you mean is the 2020-2021 term, um, as the dawn of the Trump court? And that's differentiated from the Roberts court. So if we postulate for a moment that you've you know, correctly identified prospectively this moment, uh, it raises a question. The moment came about because of the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, you know, you were a defender of her decision to stay on the court um, when there was pressure for her to leave during the first Obama administration. And in the book, here, here's a quote, you know, from, from the book on this. You know, you kind of maintain this position. You say, it's clear in retrospect that Ruth Ginsburg in dissent provided something the culture needed someone to call out with the gravitas bestowed by age and position what was happening to the court in vivid and readily understood language, the umbrella in a rainstorm image of her Shelby County descent. Okay, but at the same time, um, the book sounds the alarm about the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett, possible realignment of the court, and so forth. So if that was foreseeable, which the thesis here, I think, since you write it prospectively, is that it is, are those two threads of yours reconcilable? RGB was right to stay on, and the ascendance of Amy Coney Barrett is a moment of reckoning. Well, so I would back up a little bit. Um, you know, I've pushed back against the notion that all of our troubles began when Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, I'm staying, right? How about when Mitch McConnell said to Barack Obama, uh, you're not going to get a nominee because it's 20." 16, and that's an election year. Uh, how about when uh, the Republicans wanted to get Neil Gorsuch confirmed, which they couldn't otherwise have done, abolish the filibuster for the Supreme Court? So, uh, you know, I think it's really um, a distorted view, although a very common one, to say, oh, if only Ruth Ginsburg could have retired, we wouldn't have all these problems. It's, oh, if only the counter narrative had played out and basically beginning with the election of Donald Trump, right? So that, you know, that's really my, 
my answer, are they reconcilable in a moment? I just think that's the wrong perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, so, uh, of course, chronologically, it depends, I think, where you place um, um, Justice Ginsburg's decision to not retire. You know, there was some pressure in the first term. This is uh, Obama term for her to do that um, when when the Democrats controlled the Senate. Um, And, you know, we could, you know, aside whatever Mitch McConnell did or didn't do, you know, in that scenario, um, I think the argument... Uh, that that I've heard made, um, and I'm not making the argument, but I'm putting it forth for you, um, would, would be go something like this. You know, her replacement would have voted similarly to how she voted. Um, the odds of the Democrats winning three terms in a row uh, were very low. Last time that happened was 1837. You know, her actuarial life expectancy, I mean, it's kind of cold to talk that way, but nevertheless, um, you know, was unfavorable. And given that she had already achieved the status as a cultural icon, couldn't she have maintained the same, you know, leadership role in retirement and perhaps been less encumbered by traditional restraints on a justice? And then we might have had Justice Elizabeth Warren or Justice Amy Klobuchar or whatever, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg as cultural icon, whatever Mitch McConnell did or didn't do. This, and this reminds me of the old saying, if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a bus. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> I, I have two responses to that. Uh, really, my, well, two responses. One is we have to agree she placed a bad bet. Mm. Uh, she and, and who among us and who among your listeners didn't actually expect Hillary Clinton to win in November of 2016, right? So it was, you know, the failure of the Democratic face of oh, Akil just raised his hand. <laughs> um, most of us. Uh, the failure of the Democratic base to take seriously the pending vacancy on the court that uh, McConnell so brilliantly used to rally the Republican base. So that's one thing. The other thing, actually, I, uh, I'll push back against your premise that she was already an icon. Actually, I think as I say in the book, her iconic, notorious RBG status actually came in just the last few years. You know, she was uh, a rather soft-spoken, rather conventional, liberal, more or less, uh, member of the court for most of her tenure. And it was really only uh, in, in those last few years when, you know, that whole meme, the notorious meme, came about, and that's why I wrote the, the line that you read, that, that it, it was as if the culture needed her. The culture needed not only that voice, but that voice coming from somebody like her. But it hadn't come by the time Obama invited her to lunch and said, you know, little lady, why don't you be the one to take a bullet for the team and, and, and leave the job that you love and that you're good at? So, you know, but maybe it's time to move on to something else, Eddie. Okay. Well, and of course... Do we take lessons from this? Justice Breyer, of course, you know, is facing a similar decision. And uh, Akil and I had it, had it out here on, the, on our podcast about this uh, a few months ago. Um, do you feel that, uh, that perhaps Justice Breyer, uh, I mean, first of all, do you have any insight into his thinking on this beyond sure. what you said in the book? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, no. In, in fact, mm-hmm. I avoided it all contact with him while this dispute has been raging because I just haven't wanted him to think that I was kind of trolling for, uh, you know, to take his temperature as it were. 
Mm-hmm. So I have no insight and I really have no opinion on the matter. It's obviously a, a decision for him and he's aware of it and uh, he'll make it one way or the other. And, you know, I don't really have a lot to say about it. Okay. Thank you. Um, so uh, you mentioned the, the actions of Mitch McConnell and you talk a little bit, of course, about the confirmation process of, of Amy Coney Barrett and how it was uh, done quite rapidly, you know, and and so forth. And you use, you use quite strong language. Um, you know, that you, you clearly view it as, um, you know, kind of norm, but, uh, norm busting. In fact, you say, you call it eyebrow raising, norm shattering. No one had questioned the propriety of, of filling a seat referring to, um, the Merrick Garland, uh, confirmation. And, uh, you also talk about things not having happened in the Senate for 151 years. So, um, Akil, do you um, consider this to be norm busting in the same way um, that uh, that Linda has termed it? I don't. I would I characterize the rules of the game rather differently. So here's how I saw it. Now, Andy, earlier you said, "Gee, you know, you don't have three Democratic um, wins in a row since 1837." Of course, what you meant, because Franklin Roosevelt won four times, yes, and, and yes, then uh, Harry Truman. You were talking about the fact that the last time an incumbent Democratic president witnessed the inauguration of his handpicked successor was Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren in 1837. So that's why even at the beginning of Obama's first term, I was worried about, I'm, 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 already, I'm always worried about something and, and worried far ahead about whether we could have a three-peat. And, and I was also worried way back when about whether Obama would lose the Senate. And of course that happened. Yes, um, at the beginning of Obama's last two years in office. So put differently, at the um, end of the first two years of his second term. Uh, He lost the 2014 uh, a, a Senate election. He had lost the House of Representatives after, for the first two years of his first term, the shellacking where um, the, the House had flipped, um, but the Senate didn't turn red until uh, six years into uh, o- Obama's two-term service. So were you on the record uh, in terms of advising uh, or suggesting that Ruth Bader Ginsburg should step down earlier? I kept my mouth shut because I didn't think it would be particularly effective uh, for me to just mouth off. I, I, I don't know, uh, just, I didn't know Justice Ginsburg, who might, for whom I had great respect, the way I think Linda has known uh, Justice Ginsburg for a very long time. And, and I do think that you know, people sometimes who mouth off um, can be counterproductive. And so, so I took no you know, a, a public position, but I was always worried, even at the beginning of the Obama presidency, I thought, gee, if the Senate changes hands, that's going to be tough because it's a different confirmation process when the president and the Senate are of opposite parties than when they are of the same party. And, and it may be hard for, for Obama not just to win re-election, but to be able to hand off power to a, a successor, whether that was going to be Joe Biden or, or Hillary Clinton or someone else. So I was worried about all of that. And I confess that being married as I am to a, um, a cancer physician, 
who actually specializes in women's cancers, I also asked about the the actuarial statistics. You know, uh, there was an early cancer that had been detected very, very early, but I still said, you know, what do the numbers suggest in, in this quadrant? So, so I actually um, was worried. I don't think that McConnell's behavior was norm shattering because here's what I actually think the rules of the game are. The rules of the game are not that presidents get who they want. Ronald Reagan was a pretty popular president, uh, re-elected, handoff power to a handpicked successor, and his nominee toward the end of his um, uh, time in office, Bork failed, and, and Ginsburg, uh, D.H. Ginsburg failed. When the Senate is controlled by the opposite party, it's no gimme for the president. So I basically thought that when Scalia died unexpectedly and Obama nominated uh, Merrick Garland, it was not at all a done deal because the Senate was controlled by the other party. And there are a gazillion ways of saying no. Not having a hearing was a particularly effective in retrospect and, and ruthless way of saying no. But even if they had had a hearing, I'm not sure that Garland had the votes um, in the committee. And even if he had the votes in the committee, I'm not sure he had the votes on the floor. And that's one of the reasons the Democrats didn't push it, because... Linda's right. We thought we were going to win the presidency. We thought Hillary Clinton, most of us thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, and then Garland would go through, and if not, she could pick someone even younger and more more liberal. So I actually didn't think it was stolen by Garland. I think here are the rules. When the president controls the Senate, oh, they're going to jam something through, even if it's one day before um, the, the Senate term ends or something. They'll find a way when the president and the Senate are of the same party to get something through. And when the president and the Senate are of different parties, oh, it's going to be um, a tough sledding, perhaps. Uh, Ronald Reagan had to settle for basically his third choice, uh, Anthony uh, Kennedy. I think the country is well served by Anthony Kennedy. I thought Merrick Garland was an Anthony Kennedy-like figure, that he should have been you know, someone that the Republicans could have accepted. They played hardball, but they put everything at risk, you see, because if they had lost their bet, and it wasn't a great bet. Most people thought Hillary Clinton would have won. Actually, Hillary Clinton and, and Obama could have taken the Garland nomination off the table and, and, and nominated AOC or you know some, some 30-year-old socialist. So I do see it, it uh, a little different. And, and by the way, Andy, this is why you're saying in our previous podcast, my friend, Justice Breyer, for whom I clerked, my, should get while the getting's good, should do it while actually Biden's party, um, his party, uh, my party, the Democratic Party, his being Breyer's, still controls the Senate because it's going to be a very different rule, world if we lose the Senate, as we may very well. So, Linda, your comments? Yeah, so I, I believe, I don't have the book in front of me, but I think my uh, uh, comments about the eyebrow-raising, norm-busting, went not so much to what Akil was talking about, which is what uh, the, the blockade of the Garland nomination, but rather the ramming through of the Amy Barrett nomination while the election was going on. Millions of Americans were voting. And, and you know, in the, in the minutes after Ruth Ginsburg's death became known, I don't think people actually imagined that Trump would be able to fill that vacancy. But that night, as I recount in the book, uh, McConnell uh, summoned the president, who was on Air Force One coming back from a campaign appearance, and said, um, Mr. President, you're going to do two things. You're going to fill this vacancy, and you're going to fill it with Amy Coney Barrett. That was uh, pretty amazing. Right. I think Trump had earlier said, that, and you do quote this, that uh, – on Barrett, that he was he was saving her for Ginsburg, which talk about a callous comment because 
clearly saving it for her death. But uh, but at any rate, um, so so he did have that in mind, I think, all along. But yes, you're right. I mean, you do you do th- those you, you do take umbrage, I think, particularly at at the tactic of pushing the nomination through uh, quickly and and in a way that hadn't been done uh, in in recent memory, certainly. Um, so let me, let me say one other thing, just jump in. And then I know we need to, cause we got a lot of justices to cover and, mm-hmm. and three big issues uh, and, and uh, only so much time. Um, which tells which you how is, packed the book is by the way, with every page dripping with stuff that I need to remember. But just, and uh, Linda talked about the departure from the filibuster. I plead guilty to that. I persuaded Harry Reid and the Democrats to do it first. Back in 2013, November 2013, they modified the filibuster for lower court appointments to the D.C. Circuit, as it turned out, three lower court appointments. And once they did that, but goes round, comes round. And I warned them of that. I told them, they said, oh, we can't do that because if we do it, then the Republicans are going to do it when when they control. I said, yes, and they're going to do it whether you do it or not. So do unto them before they do unto you. We have to get rid of this dysfunctional system. So Reed did it first for lower federal court judges. Then McConnell did it for Gorsuch. And then you saw it, um, a kind of um, supercharged with Amy Coney Barrett, actually not just, you know, um, a simple majority rule, but, you know, with lightning speed. And, and I actually think we Democrats should do that now for all legislation. Kristen Sinema and, and Joe Manchin should actually agree to filibuster reform so we can get legislation through while we control the House, Senate and presidency. So I plead guilty. I'm actually our audience needs to know. In fact, the intellectual father of what's called the nuclear option filibuster reform, I believe it for the Democrats, and the Democrats did it first, but what goes around comes around. If one side can do it, the other side can do it. I don't think any of that is stolen. Just like I didn't think Biden did any stealing when he just got more votes than than Donald Trump, popular and electoral. I think when one party has a majority of the Senate and the presidency, they can ram things through with lightning speed. That's not stolen because they won the presidency and the Senate. And what's true for one party is going to be true for another party. And when there are um, opposite uh, parties, the, uh, um, when there's divided government between the president and the Senate, oh, that's when things get really interesting. Eight of the nine justices are products of unified government. Democrat presidents, I mean, Democratic-leaning um, appointees confirmed by Democrat senates or Republicans and Republicans. The only one who actually is a product of mixed government is Clarence Thomas, and oh, that was ugly. So, Linda, you're a you know a longtime observer and journalist of of, uh, of the court, um, a scholar of the court, and um, now Akil has, has recited what our perhaps the formal rules, but then there's also the question of how the court is perceived, its legitimacy, and so forth. Um, and that we do hear a lot of rhetoric, like the, the seat was stolen and this and that. Do you feel that this is something that's that's hanging over the court um, at this point um, in terms of its role? And, you know, because we've been hearing a lot of stuff recently in connection with the Dobbs case about the legitimacy of the court in other respects. So is this an additional burden that the court is bearing now? Well, I think, you know, it's hard to generalize. Um, you know, certainly there's an as- a, a branch of the Democratic left for whom this is the issue. Uh, you know, these organizations called Demand Justice is one, um, Fix the Court is another, and, uh, you, you know, um, I'm not sure how much that has resonated with the general public, but when, when the court's uh, popular approval rating plummeted from the high 50s to the low 40s 
around Labor Day, according to the Gallup poll. Uh, you know, I think it's it's easier to say, although uh, correlation is not causation, of course, but that coincided in time with the court's refusal to intervene with the Texas vigilante law, SBA, to let that law go into effect and shut down abortion in the state of Texas without the Supreme Court lifting a finger. Uh, so my, my sense is it's more what the court does, how it uses its power that gets the public's attention rather than the sort of in the weeds about how individual justices uh, got onto the court. Mm-hmm. Okay. And speaking of individual justices, um, you know, uh, you you have very interesting observations on all the justices, but um, in the interest of time, I thought we'd, we'd look at the Trump justices since they're um, really directly implicated with the thesis of your book. So, and, and Andy, on that point, you actually had read me a key sentence um, from the book where uh, Linda says that actually her, her thesis, or the question that she's asking is whether future historians are going to see the year that she profiles as the year in which the Roberts court became the Trump court. And Correct. put differently, um, when John Roberts went from being the chief and the swing, which is a really, really powerful combination. If you're the chief justice, get to assign the opinions, and you're the median, if we just uh, arrayed them left to right. If you're the median, a fifth vote on a nine-justice court, and the chief, that's very powerful. But I think uh, Linda was saying it's possible now because of this, this important pivotal year that we're moving from the Roberts court um, to, in her formulation, the Trump court, where John Roberts is no longer actually um, in the majority. So uh, uh, the swing justice, because the, the fifth vote is always in the majority, no matter where he or she, uh, how he or she votes. So if that's true, and we, and we might have seen a little bit of that actually in the, um, uh, the, the Texas uh, uh, vigilante cases just decided a week ago, that's why, Linda, we're choosing um, to highlight the Trump justices in particular and uh, John Roberts, um, and of course, we've already talked about RBG and, and Breyer on the retirement issue. So those are the ones we're really going to focus on because it seems to us that that's really analytically where your, your book was um, a particularly um, interesting. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, the, the first uh, substantive chapter in the book is titled The Triumph of John Roberts, and it's about uh, the end of, the, of October term 19 in July of 2020, when uh, looking back, uh, you know, Roberts must have felt really good. I mean, he, he had navigated the court with success through the pandemic, the shutdown, and he was in the majority in everything that mattered, uh, a bigger majority uh, percentage than practically any chief justice in, in recent history. And all of a sudden that changed, and right. it changed. Uh, it, it really changed Thanksgiving Eve of last year, when the court overturned or enjoined uh, the COVID closing regulations that had been imposed in New York by Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, with respect to houses of worship. And what do I mean by it changed overnight? So when Ruth Ginsburg was still on the court, these uh, challenges by churches and religious groups to these uh, COVID shutdowns have come to the court and had been rejected by votes of five to four, the then uh, four justices to John Roberts' right in dissent, and Roberts' writing in the first of these cases, uh, we took public health over this claim to free exercise. 
And so that was the status quo going into New Year's. Amy Barrett had been on the court for about two or three weeks. And the court flipped five to four. We choose religious exercise over public health. And Roberts was left in dissent. And that really was, you know, the first kind of domino to fall. And we see um, we see that happening now, as you said, Akil, in, in, in the Texas uh, litigation. And, you know, this is going to write the history of this of this period. And if I could just say one other thing, just making a, a pitch for an earlier book of yours, actually a co-authored book. You wrote a, a very interesting book about Harry Blackman, for whom my brother clerk, Becoming Justice Blackman. I actually wrote a, an admiring uh, review in the Washington Post way back when. We'll, we'll put that on our website associated with this podcast. But you co-wrote a book with my friend, uh, former colleague, my teacher, um, Mike Gratz, about the Burger Court. And actually, I remember we did a, an event at the New York Historical Society with that. I think I was the, the moderator. But Warren Burger, which is kind of when you begin your, your journalistic ad- adventures, is kind of you know the, the, the Burger era. Warren Burger was not actually the swing justice on the Burger Court. He was in the right wing. He wasn't the median justice. And, and so it really... For, for this nanosecond, at least, John Roberts as the chief and the swing when when Anthony Kennedy leaves and is and is replaced, or um, um, even before that with the Scalia seat going to Gorsuch, that's not always true in the history of the Supreme Court. That the chief justice is really actually typically the pivotal justice. So anyway, that's just some some background history for our audience. That wasn't true of Warren Burger. So I, I just want to point out an, an irony in. John Roberts' trajectory. So had Hillary Clinton, in fact, won in November of 2016, she would have filled the Scalia vacancy, and there would have been um, five justices to John Roberts' left, and he would have been not in control of his court. So he avoids that fate because Hillary Clinton loses, and things are looking pretty good for him. And all, for him, and all of a sudden... You know, he wakes up in the fall of 2020 and he's lost the court in the other direction with five justices, not to his left, but to his right. So it's, um, it, as I say, it's... it's, and, it's and, and, and had Hillary Clinton won and Garland been confirmed, as most people thought, Ruth Bader Ginsburg de facto would have been the leader of that five justice coalition, the most senior among the, the, the five. She would have been, in effect, chief justice de facto. And then had she chosen to step down, being replaced presumably by another woman picked by a woman president, Hillary Clinton, then the intellectual um, and, and Breyer stepped down at some point after that. Oh, then you have, you know, Sonia Sotomayor, you know, as as the senior justice on the, the, the left with Elena Kagan uh, right there with her um, as kind of respectively de facto the Earl Warren and uh, William Brennan, you know, of a newly revived, recharged sort of liberal court. Gil, you yep. have to stop. But Linda's going to, you know, break down here. I think <laughs> these, these scenarios, as 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 many of us might. Um, but uh, anyway, the, you you brought up the um, the COVID case and the uh, religious institutions, and I think that actually demonstrates an interesting, uh, not so much that case, but. Uh, just this week, you know, we saw, for example, the, the uh, justices uh, rule on another COVID-related matter where the, uh, the governor of New York had issued a, uh, a mandate, a vaccine mandate, 
um, and some of the justices objected to it on uh, uh, religious freedom grounds. And in that case, we saw uh, Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett lining up with the chief and the three uh, liberal justices. Um, so that's an alignment that we've seen on occasion. Um, and it's not quite the same issue as, as in the, you know, the first case that you mentioned. But we have seen in the case of particularly, I think, Justice Kavanaugh, he, he hasn't always wound up on the same place um, where he started. And, uh, you know, I, I was interested in, in your comments on him. So uh, even, even your perception of him, I think, uh, seems to change a little bit through the book. So here's, a, here's one comment that you make. Um, uh, you say, and of course, these are talking about different cases, so we have to realize that there's context to what you're saying. Uh, but at any rate, you say, Kavanaugh was seemingly intent on persuading the world that he really had looked at all sides of every question before embracing the conservative position he had started out with. Okay, so that's that quote implies that we can pretty much predict, you know, where he was going to be on the conservative side. But then later, uh, after the uh, ACA case on California versus Texas, you say Kavanaugh was carving out a less flamboyantly conservative role for himself and was voting most often with Roberts. Um, so that suggests that perhaps um, there might, might be some evolution in the case of, of, of Justice Kavanaugh. In the Fulton case, as well as the New York vaccine case, he doesn't vote with the religious zealots. You know, he comes out on, you know, team sanity in that case. And, and uh, um, you know, so do you see him as possibly less a certain, less predictable than you had originally thought, um, if that indeed is what you originally thought? Um, what's, your, what's your thought here? Well, as you say, there's there's context and there's and there's nuance to this, but I guess what I would say was the Alito Gorsuch Thomas trio uh, have really they, they they've jumped the shark. I mean, they are staking out positions that simply are not in the mainstream of constitutional thought, and uh, so to look at uh, you know. The, the the rest of the crowd um, as not joining them is not to say that uh, you know John Roberts is some kind of mushy moderate or uh, Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Barrett is to say that they're anchored in uh, a more conventional conservatism I would say so the the first quote you read from the book which I totally endorse uh, uh, today really refers to what I think is kind of a, you might say a, a, a tick of Kavanaugh's where he really goes through a kind of a, a public performance to show people that he really has considered all sides. And then he comes out on the conservative side. So, you know, do I see that as anything particularly, uh, endearing if that's your no uh do i see it as evidence that he's going to quote evolve and that he's you know the next david Souter or something no i really don't i think it's i think it's public performance um you know he was fully with the uh the zealous as you call them on uh 
on those COVID relation cases. Uh, he might have voted differently in the Texas SB8 case. Uh, you know, all John Roberts needed was a fifth vote back in September to grant a stay. And a stay would have been the most conventional way to handle that emergency application. Because after all, they'd already granted the Mississippi case. And so the conventional thing to have done would be to say, oh, this Texas case raises the issue of uh, the constitutionality of a pre-viability abortion ban. So does Dobbs, the Mississippi case. We're going to hear that in just a few weeks. So we're going to put the Texas case on hold until we sort out what we think about the question we've agreed to decide in Dobbs. Brett Kavanaugh could have said, yeah, that's a good argument, and given his fifth vote, but did he? No, he did not. But as Andy did mention, and this is new since our last podcast episode, um, just very recently, Kavanaugh and um, Amy Coney Barrett did join the chief and the liberals in another um, a COVID uh, case where there was a claim of religious exemption. And, and, um, and three justices, I'm not going to endorse Andy's description. I'm just going to repeat you know, his, his uh, description of them as the zealots. Well, they are. Um, That's just so, an <laughs> they're my friends. So, I, uh, yeah, thou sayest. Um, so, yeah. So, so, so. Um, but, but, but Kavanaugh didn't, and, and Amy Coney Barrett didn't line up with Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch in the most recent COVID case, just as they didn't quite um, um, a, a line up with um, uh, Alito's position in the Fulton case last term. So, there is a little bit of daylight between at least. Those two Trump justices, Barrett and Kavanaugh, and the other Trump justice, Gorsuch, who joined the Alito Thomas pairing. Actually, I think the the, the we didn't uh, get into this, but the, the the case where I think Kavanaugh did give the biggest evidence that he was willing to rethink a position was in the election cases. Um, you know, uh, Akil knows the particulars of this uh, better than me. But um, when some justices sort of threatened to revive Bush versus Gore in its most extreme fashion before the the 2020 election and Kavanaugh sort of dipped a toe in the water in some one case, but then kind of pulled back um, in other cases when uh, my friend Sam Alito and uh, joined him often by Gorsuch and 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 uh, Thomas were still charging ahead trying to revive Bush versus Gore. Um, and T- Thomas, of course, was a was a, a justice on Bush versus Gore, and hasn't su- suggested that he's he's really repudiated his position. So I did think that Kavanaugh did pull back a little bit um, in uh, some of those pre-election cases where hardcore conservatives were trying to revive certain, I think, very deeply unpersuasive and unfortunate aspects of Bush versus Gore. Yeah, well, I'll just say about that. I mean, yeah, yes, you're you're right. Actually, of course. But I wouldn't rest easy because, um, <laughs> you know, those cases came up very abruptly. They weren't well yep. presented. Yep. Uh, you know, even Alito at the end of the day had to say with great regret, you know, I wish we could grant this, but it's just too late. Right. Uh, I think uh, with better preparation, better lead time, uh, you know, people making those claims and the claim you're talking about is the claim of legislative supremacy. Yes. Uh, that was the kind of lurking issue in yes. Bush against Gore. Um, uh, that's going to be much better elaborated on, and they could be leaning, the people making that argument could be leaning on an open door if they if they presented it in a, in a more persuasive way. And Linda, I so agree with you that this is actually um, 
a loaded gun still lying around and that I shouldn't be breathing easy and none of us should. Can you um, and explain it, has, it to our audience for yeah, a moment? It, ha- because- it has huge implications for 2024, and I will explain it in just a second. I think it's so important um, that my brother Vic Amar and I are actually authoring a lead article in the Supreme Court Review, which is a, an important scholarly journal, faculty edited out of the University of Chicago, and, and especially aimed at Supreme Court justices and, and, and practitioners to try to finally drive a stake through the heart of a certain theory that commanded three votes in Bush versus Gore, one of which was Justice Thomas's, and Linda called it legislative supremacy. But in a nutshell, it's um, that basically the state legislatures get to um, play a, a, um, um, the, a, such a dominant role in the electoral college system that state judges actually um, uh, can't interpret state constitutions in the ordinary way that state judges actually get to interpret state constitutions in the most extreme form. Um, our audience should be ready for the possibility that some state legislatures are going to say, well, since in, in places like Arizona and Georgia, uh, which have red legislatures and red governors, red state legislatures, red governors, gee, you know, since the elections are rigged, since they're fixed, since all sorts of illegal people are voting and it's fraudulent, we're not going to have presidential elections in Arizona and Georgia. We're going to pick the electors ourselves. And that could happen in, in Wisconsin. And um, um, if Virginia's Senate turns red as it could in 2023, expect that. Or if not that, gee, we're going to allow elections to happen. But we, the state legislature, are going to be the judges of who really won the election, not state courts, not proper civil servants. Uh, counting um, votes in you know a sane and sober way, we're going to jump back in. Um, and, and some of those are actually lawful, um, perhaps. Um, some of them are daft, but, 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 but lawful. Um, but in the extreme virulent form that, that um, Linda um, was identifying, several important conservative movements were trying to basically cut state courts out of the loop when state courts were trying to protect right to vote under state constitutions and saying, oh, no, you have no role here. It's only up to state legislatures. And these were very red state legislatures. Yeah, I mean, let me just uh, elaborate a second. So you might say, well, what, you know, why does it matter, state court versus state legislature? And here's why I think is that, you know, we know the extreme gerrymander that goes on Mm -hmm. so that uh, Republicans are in increasing control of state legislatures in the country. And of course, it you know, it feeds on itself because if they're in control, they're the ones who draw the district lines based on the next census and so on and mm-hmm. so on. Um, whereas um, in, in many states, the state Supreme Courts are elected and they're elected statewide. And that means they're not subject to the gerrymander. And so there are a number of states, and I believe Pennsylvania, where a lot of this lit- uh, litigation came out of um, in, in the last cycle, um, has basically a, a, a relatively liberal state Supreme Court even though it has a Republican legislature. And I think that pattern uh, is mirrored in, you know, various of the kind of swing states. And, and that's the dynamic that underlies this, I believe. And one of the leaders of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court writing the key opinion uh, this last election cycle about absentee ballots and other things is a friend of mine, Yale College, Yale Law School graduate, David Wecht. And there were these efforts to undermine the traditional role of state courts interpreting state constitutions, which talk about a right to vote. And absolutely right. It, it, it does matter a lot whether you're picked statewide, one person, one vote, or you're picked district wide, 
where rural districts have a huge advantage for various complex reasons, some of which have to do with gerrymandering, some of which have to do with urban clustering. Um, most of the Democrats in Pennsylvania you know, live in Philadelphia and, and Pittsburgh. Carville's definition of Pennsylvania is Pittsburgh and Philadelphia connected by northern Alabama. And, and all the Democrats are overwhelmingly clustered in a couple of places. So, so um, um, most of the districts are won by Republicans, even if most of the voters actually are Democratic. So we're going to do a, a, a whole podcast or more on this. Um, maybe when your article comes up, maybe we'll have Vic on or whatever. But, but at any rate, it's important to clarify. So, so you know, in two cases, the bottom line of the reason I brought this up was two cases, a few days apart, almost identical, um, and Kavanaugh changed his vote to align with the chief on that. So that that you know, we don't know why it was a no. There was no opinion. It was just, but uh, but it's, it's interesting. Okay, so let's move on to Justice Gorsuch. Um, which I found to be the most entertaining part of the book. Um, uh, you know, here, here's a, a quote from uh, from Linda on on Justice Gorsuch. She, she, she she's smiling because it's a juicy quote. Um, uh, <laughs> spoiler alert. Yes, uh, reports from inside the court in the late spring and summer of 2017 suggested that the justices found their new colleague anywhere from annoying to insufferable. In subsequent terms, he seemed to have dialed back his rhetorical instincts. Um, and uh, then later, uh, uh, you say that uh, Gorsuch was developing a specialty in taunting the chief justice. So at any rate, um, so obviously this is, you know, you don't mean this in a, in a gossipy way, but it's, you know, it's playing out in opinions, this kind of, uh, you know, animosity or, 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 or disrespect. Um, does this have implications beyond just the two of them? I mean, do you do you think this is you know, this is his style in general, or you know, and also do you have any additional goodies on this? I, I don't. Other than as you say, um, you know, just look at the opinions and the kind of um, solipsistic, uh, you know, his, his dissent in, in the um, the vaccine uh, emergency order. Uh, case that, that you mentioned that came down the other day. I mean, uh, you know, little lectures about, uh, you know, the role of religion. I mean, no, Neil. I mean, we're talking about a public health crisis. We talk about the government exercising its traditional role to protect the public. And, you know, really, why don't you just, like, give it a rest? I mean, he, he, he just loves the sound of his own voice. And, uh, you know, it may be what ultimately seems to be pushing uh, Barrett and Kavanaugh uh, to, to be uh, a little bit wary about, about uh, you know, uh, signing up, saluting uh, when, when Gorsuch is, is, thinks he's leading the parade. So let me make a couple of connections for our uh, podcast audience. One is um, Linda is, of course, looking carefully at the opinions themselves and 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 figuring out um, from the conversation back and forth in the opinions, deducing some things about the relationship of the the justices authoring these opinions and their attitudes toward each other and each other's arguments. But she also has sources, um, and she can't reveal all those sources. Um, some of them might be justices. We're not going to ask her whether they are law clerks, others. I want to remind our audience that one of our first um, very prominent 
invitees to on this podcast series where we're, uh, next week will will be fully one year but one of our first invitees was the great bob woodward who not only brought down at least one president um richard nixon but arguably a second um donald trump with um a, a fear and 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 rage um which are epic um, books, but also wrote a hugely important expose about the court, the the brethren, and 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 Linda's um, books on, on justices on the court are in, in that broad tradition, journalist writing, um, important books. She wrote one on Justice Blackman, Becoming Justice Blackman. She co-wrote one on the Burger um, Court with, with Mike Kratz. And Woodward had all sorts of sources, also um, justices and, and and clerks and the like. So, so uh, wait, I, I have I have to interrupt and I'm okay. going to shock you. I don't have sources. Oh, I mean, I <clears throat> certainly for writing this book, um, I just sat in my study in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, uh, oh, wow. day and night for okay. seven months. Okay, so you're more of that. That's more of the law professor than the journalist. Um, I, you know. I, I've I've never had sources on the court. I've never talked to law clerks. Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, so, because other oh. folks, you know, we're, we're going to have Joan Biskupic on at a certain point and, oh, and think, Nina think, Totenberg and Marcia Coyle. I think Joan has great sources. I've never asked her. Um, you know, I, I just. Oh, wow. Okay. So I, I did not know that. I I've did not know that. I've tried a different path, which is just, um, you know, uh, hyper vigilance in reading everything these people write. And you know, do I pick up sort of stuff in the, uh, you know, in my little Supreme Court silo that other people have found out and to their satisfaction, you know, believed to be true? Yeah, I mean, people talk to me, but but not members of the court and not people okay. that work at the court. So, but let me make one other connection, and here's why it's not just gossip. And 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 Andy, you you began to hint in in this direction. There, there are other books that I've read about the justices. Evan Thomas wrote a book on on, on Justice O'Connor, and it was and they did have sources, and they actually um, say that Scalia's temperament, which is kind of very acerbic, Bruce very individualistic. Bruce Murphy wrote a book, A Court of One, about Scalia. He was an only child. He was an only grandchild. He, he didn't grow up kind of playing with siblings, and he it is said in some of these other journalistic accounts drove. Sandra Day O'Connor away. There were actually, um, uh, there was a coalition of, of five or more conservative justices, but that coalition didn't quite gel because Scalia insulted O'Connor re- repeatedly. I mean, you see it actually in, in Smith, which we may talk about a case about religious accommodation. Uh, Scalia's footnote five in Smith is really, you know, an attack on O'Connor style balancing. She was, uh, wrote a, a separate opinion in the case. Um, so much so that the Chief Justice of the United States, William Rehnquist, and this is kind of not just in the opinions, but of course, um, wrote a note saying, Nino, you know, cut it out. You're pissing off Sandy. I think that's actually a direct quote from this note. And, and it had consequences. O'Connor, I think there was a time, there was a year that she never joined a Scalia opinion or something like that. It made it harder for that, you know, uh, group of conservative-leaning justices to congeal into a, a tight group. So so things like this can have implications. The Brethren does sort of talk about some of these micropolitics. And uh, Linda's book, Becoming Justice Blackman, talks very poignantly and interestingly, and she did have access to, to Justice Blackman's paper. She was the first journalist to have um, access um, after his death to a particularly interesting relationship between Blackman and um, Berger, who had been best friends really growing up, but began to 
um, uh, diverge um, when they both uh, got on the court. So, so some of these things actually can matter. Uh, and Lynn, I saw you nodding your head on, on, uh, on one of the things. So I know you want to jump in on this. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I certainly have heard, I mean, I read Evan Thomas's very good biography of Sandra O'Connor. I certainly had heard that. And, and, you know, it was in one of the early abortion cases, the Webster case in 1989, when uh, O'Connor didn't vote the way we sh- she was supposed to vote. Uh, you know, she could have reduced, she could have been a fifth vote to basically reduce the right to abortion to being subject to simply rational basis. And she didn't do it. And uh, Scalia was really angry because he had assumed that her vote was his. And he wrote that um, her separate opinion was, I think this is a direct quote, not to be taken seriously. Okay. Mm. Now, by that time, she had been on the Supreme Court for eight years. And, you know, so I wouldn't necessarily say, and I don't think you were saying this, but I think some people do that, oh, he insulted her. And so she became more liberal. No. I think what happens psychologically is he acts like a bully uh, and it would cause somebody who's been bullied by him to think, hmm, you know, maybe there's less to him than meets the eye and maybe there's another way of looking at life on the court. And, you know, in other words... And maybe I should listen to my friend Steve Breyer who actually um, is never a bully. It could sort of, you know, pry open somebody's mind, cause them to revisit the preconceptions that they brought with them when they came to this essentially isolating position of power at the seat of power. And I think that's more what happens that, uh, you know, and so we don't know about Amy Barrett, you, you know, I mean, I know Andy once asked me all about Amy Barrett, but, you know, we just have a few data points, but I think it is significant that, she did not join Alito's uh, rant in the Fulton case. That was the Philadelphia case about religious exceptions to uh, uh, the requirement not to engage in anti-LGBT discrimination. And uh, Alito just, I mean, uh, uh, Alito just went, you know, way off the deep end with something that he may have crafted as a, as a majority opinion and lost the majority. I don't know. But, um, you know, I think he, in a couple of cases, just sort of assumed that because they're both very serious Catholics, they're both conservative, uh, that he could count on her vote. And she's her own person, as she claimed to be in, in her confirmation hearing. And um, and I think she just felt the need to show that, indeed, she's not in Alito's pocket or anybody else's pocket. Yeah, I think, uh, and actually the quote that I was going to run by you on, on uh Justice Barrett is very much in this vein where you say, you know, and what of Amy Barrett? Was it possible that her call for nuance was meant to send Alito, and that's on Smith, um, was meant to send Alito a message that her style was not going to be his and that her vote was not to be taken for granted? So that, that I think, is, is just the sentiments that you were expressing. When I read it, you know, uh, my impression as a reader was that this is, you know, pure speculation. Um, but then I say, well, you know what? You actually called it just right, you know, in terms of the New York case, you know, and so forth. The New York um, COVID case right. in the last week. Yes. Um, so anyway, uh, and the, the other thing that I think might be, and when we talk about this question of how things evolve on the court, you're talking about some interpersonal, uh, you know, aspects of it. I just wonder if we haven't really 
gotten there yet because, you know, you, you wrote this book, but it was, and you expected certain things to happen during the year, but it was during a pandemic. So they're not meeting. They're not, you know, for part of the year, they're not, you know, having lunch, you know, or, or whatever um, for a good part of the year. So that it, it puts some of that evolution of the court on hold, I would think, or at least, you know, suddenly Justice Thomas is asking questions and, you know, it's a very different uh, situation. Yeah, well, what I would say about that, so, um, you know, there, Noah Feldman reviewed my book for the New York Times, and it was a very puzzling review in which he said, oh, gee, she picked the wrong year because she picked a year where nothing really happened. And I was kind of shocked by this, since he's like a famous law professor at Harvard, that he couldn't understand that what I recount is the agenda setting that that went on during the year I'm writing about, OT20, that gives us the year that's going on, the term that's going on right now, where the cases that they helped themselves to uh, a year ago are now playing out and will become merits opinions this term. So, um, I mean, yes, it was a pandemic. They didn't start meeting face-to-face until they were all vaccinated, and that was... uh, late March, early April. Um, but I think it was more that it was a, it was a term when uh, they got bold enough to know that now we can take a Second Amendment case. Now we can take an abortion case. Uh, you know, we're going to move on religion because we got the votes, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, that was really, that's the measure of the, of the term, uh, that I wrote about, and we're seeing it play out this term. You know, so to transition to, into those issues, um, so when we talk about religion, um, I think that this this uh, uh, this case, Fulton case, is really a you know a, the, sort of the start of something, or or not, right? In other words, Alito seemed to look at it as a case where he was going to finally get what he had been dropping hints for, uh, you know, over, over a number of years. And then he doesn't get it because of, and you know, with Barrett's comments. So Barrett jo- jo- joined by Kavanaugh. Yes, and she says, "Well, you know, maybe Smith needs to be modified, but you know, what would take its place?" And that's a question. You know, uh, now you, I think, suggest in in the way you describe the narrative that it's it's not so much that something is taking is going to take its place that they're going to come up with, but rather that uh, Lukumi is sort of supplanting Smith. Is that yeah. the way that you see it? Is that that's what's I, going to be in its place? I totally do. Thank you. And 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 you need to tell our audience what Lukumi right, is. Right, right. Andy has become a law professor now, <laughs> but uh, but our audience isn't. Yeah, I mean, I to to me this is so obvious, but I've just been um, a little baffled that the uh, uh, the the kind of law crowd hasn't actually picked up on this, and and I think. Um, the kind of received wisdom of what happened in the Fulton case was, oh, well, it was kind of, they ran around the mulberry bush and at the end of the day, nothing much happened. And, and I think quite the opposite. So um, a case called uh, uh, Church of the Babaluai against the Kumi was a case from uh, 1993 uh, where the court uh, looked at an instance of rank anti-religious discrimination, discrimination against a despised minority religion in the city of Hialeah, um, 
a Caribbean, Afro, a Cuban, Afro-Caribbean religion that relied in part on the sacrifice of uh, live chickens. So uh, the city of Hialeah, where this population had been growing, passed a law that said um, uh, you can't engage in killing animals for sacrifice. They didn't say anything about you can't kill animals to hunt them or you can't kill animals to eat them. You can't kill animals for sacrifice. So a free exercise challenge was brought to this, and the court said, okay, uh, this is not a neutral law of general applicability, which was the test in Employment Division against Smith for a law where you, you could not claim uh, a free exercise opt-out from a, a law of general applicability. You know, they're, they're, they, they singled out uh, the religion they didn't like, and consequently that's unconstitutional. So that was pretty clear. It was unanimous, in fact. And for years after that, Lukumi is almost never cited. I did a quick check on this, and uh, it just was, you know, a one-off, right? All of a sudden, uh, in the last few years, Lukumi starts, you could say blossoming, you could say metastasizing, whatever verb you want, and it becomes extremely useful. And it solves for Chief Justice Roberts and his majority, plurality, I forget how to characterize uh, what happened in Fulton, of his way out. So he said, oh, we don't have to worry about employment division against Smith. That's, you know, we agreed to decide whether we should overrule it, but we don't have to do that because uh, the the contract uh, at issue uh, by which the city of Philadelphia thought it was binding this Catholic Social Service Agency not to discriminate in the name of religion against LGBT people, uh, that's not uh, generally applicable because uh, it has, there, there can be exceptions. It's written into the contract that there can be a certain exception. Well, as Neil Katyal had pointed out in the oral argument representing uh, the city of Philadelphia, the exception had never even been invoked. It was it's meaningless. But what, what the Chief Justice was able to do was to say, oh, Lukumi says it's unconstitutional. It's not general applicability. So I'll, I'll cut to the chase here. If you can find that the Philadelphia contract was not of, quote, general applicability, then anything can be found to be not of general applicability because no two things are ever precisely 101% alike. And so this... Use of Lukumi opens a complete barn door, uh, you know, through which religious claims are going to pass and be welcomed uh, by the court uh, going forward. I think. Although, I know Akil wants to jump in, but before, just one comment, Akil, which is that in the New York case this week, um, you know, Justice Gorsuch makes a lot of hay or tries to. Out of the you know the act the governor Hochul's uh, you know bizarre comments at uh, at church you know saying that you know that you're on the side of God and they're not you know and so forth you know pri- essentially private comments but um, and, he, and he cites Lukumi yes but but he lost is the point and, and I was just going to Andy you know is uh, uh, completing my sentences before I even begin them I wanted to make a very closely related point which is. Um, the three, um, uh, I'll call them red hots, you're, you're calling them religious zealots or something, but um, are, are saying, um, uh, gee, 
Um, there are exceptions for this vaccine mandate for medical purposes. So if you have a medical exception, you have to have a it's not really a generally applicable thing. You have exceptions, so you have to have a religious exception. But actually, six justices says, no, there are differences between medical exceptions, exemptions, and religious exemptions. And there might be a very few, you know, set of medical exemptions, and they're science-based, and that's very different from religious exemptions, which might be a lot more and 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 not science-based. Um, and this is a contagious disease. So so maybe it's too soon to proclaim defeat here. And we see, again, this is to Andy's earlier point, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett distinguishing, separating themselves from uh, Gorsuch, Thomas Alito, and allying, allying with um, John Roberts. So on this one, which happened just this week, it's still the, the Roberts court. Yeah, I mean, this obviously was, was a, a Lukumi too far for, for, <laughs> you know, for this court. And, and, you know, as we said earlier in talking about, you know, choosing religious exercise over public health. I mean, this is an extreme, you know, you want a crazy position that these three are taking. So the fact that there were, you know, six of them that didn't take that position doesn't really tell us anything except I think underscores how crazy that the, the religious position is in, in, in this particular context. But I think what, what they've done with Lukumi uh, is of very substantial importance and we're going to see it in cases where the, the the claims are more are more rational and and there's more to more to discuss, I think. So, so, so the book is Justice on the Brink, um, and Linda Greenhouse has really teed up the uh, forthcoming uh, terms, plural. And, the, and and one question I did want to ask uh, to the end. I, I know that we didn't get to the chance to talk as much about abortion and guns, but Andy and I may do a little bit of that um, after. I know, Linda, you have to go. But the one question that we both actually had that we did want to ask in, in light in a way of, of Noah Feldman's um, a book review is, can the audience expect that you uh, might at some point write another book when you look at this term or this term and maybe the next one and actually um, uh, try to answer the question of, of whether some of the things that you predicted uh, have actually come to pass? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, this book was enabled by really by the pandemic because I had no distractions and I worked on it day and night for seven months. Uh, it wouldn't have been possible in normal life to, to turn something around that fast. You know, I turned in the manuscript at the beginning of August and the book was published in mid-November. That doesn't happen in, in, you know, major publishing, but Random House made it happen. So I'm not holding myself out as, as doing, a, you know, Theodore White, the making of the president this time and the next time and the time after that. Mm -hmm. um, or Bob Woodward with fear and rage and, and panic yeah. or something exactly. like that. Well, in that, that case, you'll have to come on America's Constitution again and we'll evaluate it on the podcast. Okay, that's the deal. Okay, well, thank you very much, Linda. And, and again, the book is, is Justice on the Brink, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and 12 Months That Transformed the Supreme Court. And of course, you can also read Lin Linda's columns from time to time um, in the New York Times. In fact, uh, she had one uh, yesterday. Um, and it'll, it'll be in print uh, tomorrow, I, or uh, no, Sunday, I think it'll be in print on Sunday, yep. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, too bad we can't use this advanced web stuff to uh, predict stock market things before <laughs> okay. they actually happen. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Linda. Mazel tov. <laughs>